Amen? And that's not a bad thing. You know, sometimes we get the Thanksgiving time, and that seems to be the only year that we are thankful, and the only part of the year that we're thankful. And it should not be that, that we're only thankful one month out of the year. It ought to be all the time, all the time. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Again, for those that do not know me, my name is Andrew Montgomery. I am just the fill-in here while your pastor is out of town. And uh, as John mentioned, he's coming back tomorrow night, so you will be done with me right there. All right. Praise the Lord for that. Romans chapter 12, if you would. Romans chapter 12, if you would. And we'll go to verse number 1 and 2. will be our starting passage of Scripture this morning. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and and two. Now, these four messages that I've been preaching the last uh, Sunday morning and Sunday night, and then uh, this morning and tonight, have all been on one single topic. Can anybody tell me what that topic was? The gospel. We are talking about the gospel. We're focusing on the gospel. We looked at Sunday morning, the simplicity of the gospel, that the good news of Jesus Christ goes out to all the world. Anybody can receive it. Anybody can understand it. It is laid out to where even children can get it. And quite frankly, children get it before most adults do. That Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, that we might have hope of heaven in Him. But then Sunday night, we looked at the depth of the gospel. Uh, tonight or t- Today, this morning, we're going to look at the lifestyle of the gospel. So Romans chapter 12, verse number 1, and let's read it together. The Bible says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And let's pray. Father, help me now as I preach to uh, this church and these people uh, to share your word with them, to lay it out to where we can grow from your instructions for our life. Uh, Lord, I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you as Savior, that today would be the day they get that settled. Please help me just to step out of the way. Uh, Lord, any pride or arrogance any, any selfishness, anything that's in my heart that, that I've not confessed before you, or Lord, that I'm ignorant to, please forgive me. I want to be a vessel that you can use, a tool in the hand of the Master to be a help to this church. I pray that not only would there be a Spirit-filled preacher, but Lord, in the congregation, there'd be Spirit-filled hearers that would open up their hearts to follow all that the Holy Spirit leads them to do. We pray these things in your name. Amen. The lifestyle of the gospel. We make a mistake with the gospel sometimes. We treat it as if it's just a stepping stone into Christianity. And once we get saved, we no longer need it. We can just live the Christian life. And that couldn't be further from the truth. What I want us to see this morning is the gospel ought to penetrate every area of our life well beyond salvation. The gospel is not just fire insurance. You know, I got forgiveness of my sins. I'm not going to spend eternity in hell. I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. All right, now I pull out forward on my own. No, Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is walking alongside you in this journey that we call life. And as we grow in God's word, as we grow as Christians, there's a certain culture that comes with that. There's a certain lifestyle that comes with that. The word lifestyle gets thrown out a lot in our day and age. You have social media influencers trying to you know, show people their lifestyle. We have media, the media trying to uh, push a certain lifestyle agenda on us. And there's, there's, there's a culture that's being shifted. There's always an advertisement for a culture. Well, the Bible has a certain culture attached to it. The gospel has a certain culture attached to it. It is a lifestyle of being a Christian. In the Bible we see here in Romans chapter 12 tells us a little bit about that culture. We see that we are called by the mercies of God to present our bodies, our lives, as a living sacrifice to God. It's to be holy. It's to be acceptable to Him. And to do so is our reasonable service. It just makes sense. He died for us. 
But much more than dying for us, he lived for us for 33 years. He did no sin. For 33 years, he gave up the glory of heaven to put on the stinky skin suit. For 33 years, he suffered as we suffer. He was tempted and tried like we are tried. Yet he lived the same life, holy and acceptable to his Father, to be able to present it as a sacrifice for you and I. And when we consider that Jesus died for us, it just it makes sense that we ought to live for him. It's reasonable, is what the Bible says. What does this reasonable, holy, acceptable life look like? Well, he says in verse 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. My two-year-old Judson is a fan of Plato. <laughs> and it is everywhere. <laughs> I mean, I know there's this like, you know, step on a, on, a, on a Lego in the middle of the night barefoot. But hold up. If you step on a little shard of Play-Doh barefoot in the middle of the night, you thought you walked on glass, man. This stuff is crazy hard. And uh, my boy loves Play-Doh. What he loves to do is he has these cookie cutters. He's got this one particularly, it's a truck, and he, he, he takes the Play-Doh, he rolls it out flat, and then he takes the, the, the truck cookie cutter, and he puts the cookie cutter over the top of the Play-Doh, pushes it down, pulls the rest away, and boom, he's got a piece of dough, a piece of clay that has been conformed to the image of a truck. And we're told as Christians not to conform, not to be shaped in the image of this world. The culture of this world, the culture of, of this, this, this society we live in that does not know or follow God. But we're told, in fact, to do the opposite. He says, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. If we will be holy and acceptable sacrifices to God, then we must be transformed. The Greek word there is the word metamorpho, from which we get the word metamorphosis. You have the little caterpillar and he eats a bunch of uh, uh, grass or uh, leaves and he becomes a big fat caterpillar. He turns in, you know, weaves this cocoon. And in this cocoon, this caterpillar goes through a complete change, a complete transformation. He comes out totally different as a butterfly than he was as a caterpillar. In fact, everything about the caterpillar is gone. And the butterfly emerges. And God's desire for you as Christians is not only to save you and fix you up. Like we, we, think like we think that the gospel saves us and then God does a quick tune-up and makes us more like Him. He's not interested in a tune-up. God's desire is a complete overhaul. He wants to take your life and transform you, change you into something totally different than what you were when you found Christ. Now, you may look like the same, same person, same man, same woman, have the same hair or lack thereof, the same face, the same uh, 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 voice, all, all those things, but there are changes. You no longer think the same. You no longer respond the same. You no longer do the same things, hang around the same people, go to the same places. There ought to be a transformation in you from the time you met Christ and began to follow Him. The lifestyle of the gospel. We are sanctified, the Bible says. We are set aside for a holy and special purpose. And that purpose is to become like Him, to learn from Him, to follow Him. The Bible uses the word disciple. And the lifestyle of the gospel really is a lifestyle of being a disciple. And to understand the idea of being a disciple, we kind of have to understand the culture in Jesus' day when he called his disciples. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he began to assemble some followers, some students. Now, this may come as a shock to you, but Jesus didn't invent the word disciple. It was a culture of the day. When a Jewish teacher or rabbi would begin to grow in influence and he was ready to pass on what he had learned to the next generation of rabbis, he would call to himself disciples. 
He would call people to follow him. Usually these were men who had uh, gone through Torah school and, 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 and had really uh, shown high marks. And there was this, this uh, air about them that they were very intelligent and that they could be very good rabbis in the future. But they would call, the rabbi would call their disciple. The disciple would come and sit at the feet of the rabbi. And for the next several years, the disciple would simply follow the rabbi. Hang on his every word. Copy what he did. In fact, the disciple's goal was to become as much like his rabbi as he possibly could. Because the desire of the rabbi, the trade-off here, was the rabbi was taking what he had learned, what he had been taught, what he knew about God's word, and was sharing that wealth of experience with the next generation in the desire that what he knew and what he had taught and what he loved about God would be passed on through the generations long past his lifetime, long past when he is gone. This is exactly what Jesus did. He came to this earth, and as he began his earthly ministry, he called disciples, he called men. Now, he called an interesting band of men, didn't he? He called fishermen. He called uh, 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 just day laborers. He called a zealot, which would have been a revolutionary. He called a publican, um, uh, you know, which was a guy who worked for the IRS, you know, a tax man. He had this, this group of followers that began to, to hang on his every word, to try and copy what he did, to learn how to do ministry like he did ministry. In fact, they learned and he sent them out even during his ministry to go and preach and teach and work as he worked. And our desire as Christians is to be disciples of our rabbi, to be like him to learn from him. So what does that look like? I'm going to give you five things that, that if we could try and understand a lifestyle of the gospel, we say this person truly, this person, he, he, he lives a life that represents the gospel. What are five things about that person we could identify? Number one, if we're going to identify somebody who is a life, lives a lifestyle focused on the gospel, it's going to be somebody that builds their lives on what Jesus said. Somebody that builds their lives on what Jesus said. As I said, the disciple, a mark of the good disciple, was to hang on every word. The words of the rabbi, our rabbi, our teacher, our master, our Lord, they're given for us today. We can hang on every word because we have it in our hands. We are so blessed here in the United States of America, especially because so many of us have such access to God's Word. But the sad reality, the sad state of Christianity in America, is that though so many of us have many copies of the Bible laying about, we have them in the bedroom, we have them in the, on the coffee table, we have them in you know, the living room, we got them in a van. We got them in a backpack. I mean, we got them everywhere. So many of us have so many copies of the Bible available to us, but we don't know what it says. We never pick it up. We never open it. We never read it for ourselves. We never dive in and hang on every word. And yet, we are called just to do that very thing. How often does time pass without us reading our Bible? How often does time pass without us studying our Bible? Can I ask you a question? How well do you, not your brother, not your sister, not your husband, not your wife, how well do you know the Bible? And I did not say, how well do you know how your pastor explains the Bible? How well do you specifically know God's Word? When Jesus came to this earth, he, he, he preached the message. And let's go, if you would, to uh, the book of Matthew in chapter number 7. We call this message the Sermon on the Mount. And really, if you want, if you want 
study this idea of the lifestyle of the gospel, the Sermon on the Mount is what to read because Jesus describes what his followers are to look like. I can only have time for five things here this morning, but uh, I mean the whole Sermon on the Mount focuses on that subject. But as he closes out the sermon, he tells a story. In Matthew chapter 7, he says in verse number 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, these teachings, these things I'm saying here, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man. I know the folks are still trying to get there. We're in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24 at the very end there. He said, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when it came to pass, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. And he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus says here, he says, if you if you build your life on what I'm saying, if you, if you hear these teachings, if you hear these, these sayings of mine, and you do them, then you are like a wise man. A wise man who's building a house, and he looks at the location to build that house, and he decides to choose a place that will be a sure foundation against the storms of life. But he says, if you hear what I'm saying and you don't do it, then you are a foolish man. I don't think any of us like to think of ourselves as fools. We all like to think we're wise, right? At least we want to hope we're wise. But he says, if you don't do what I'm saying, if you, if you hear these words and you do not do them, then you are a foolish man, like a foolish man, who is building his house upon the sand. It's an unsure foundation. The rock is solid. It's going to stand up to the storms. It's going to hold. It's going to be sturdy. It's going to be around for years and years to come. But sand is constantly shifting. It's constantly moving. A good windstorm and your yard is no longer your yard. It's your neighbor's yard. It just blew over. Right? We understand that. It's not a solid foundation. It's not firm. My uh, Many years ago, we were in high school, and my, my stepdad had always been promising to build my brother and I a fort. I mean, like, like a fort. You know, you know, clubhouse with swings and everything else. Every house we moved to, we lived in Reno, he promised to build a fort. Nothing happened. We moved to Vegas, we put in like a foundation for it, you know, the start for that. He said, all right, we're going to build a fort. Nothing happened. So we moved here to Silver Springs, and we were in high school by then, and he said, all right, we're going to build a fort, and this time we're certainly going to do it because you're going to help. <laughs> you know, you're going to do the work yourselves. And we built this thing. If you go out to Deer Street in Silver Springs, there is this ugly massive tower and it was so wonderful to build it's like this thing is 12 feet high uh, i mean it, it is is awesome it's just built by you know with two by four and and, and uh, uh plywood it is great has this long 20 foot walkway it looks like this castle it was great to build we put the foundation in just right there for you know four post hole foundation i visited my parents house recently i can see where we first laid the foundation and I can see where the sand has now uncovered about this much of the foundation. It is not solid. It changes. It shifts. It moves with time. This world is like the sand. Anybody ever notice that things here in this world change? Our culture's changed, hasn't it? Two, three years, it rapidly fast has changed. We see things, we hear things that we never would have imagined being the case, even 10 years ago. Even 10 years ago, some of the stuff that's coming out as being put as uh, uh, just normal by our, our, our media, uh, that, that was stuff that was 
the fringes, uh, the, uh, the radicals at one point. Culture changes. People change. Some people build their lives on people. Their, 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 their rock, their foundation is a relationship with another human being. Here's the problem. Those aren't guaranteed. People change. People fail. You know, if you're, you're new to this church, I'm going to help your pastor out real quick. You ready? Your pastor here, he is going to fail you at some point in time. If you were to go to Silver Springs, the pastor there will fail you quite often. <laughs> because we are human beings. We forget birthdays. We miss visiting people in the hospital. We say we're going to do something and then get caught up with all the busyness of ministry and it doesn't get done. Human beings will fail you. Your husband and wife will fail you. Your children will fail you. Your parents will fail you. They are not a sure foundation. What is a sure foundation upon which we can build our lives? The Word of God. The teachings, the sayings of our Master. The teachings, the sayings of our Rabbi. The one we are following after. If there's any person on earth who is living, modeled the Gospel, it was the one who the Gospel is about. And if we're to be like him, and we'll talk about that even more in a little bit, if we're to be more like him, then we must pay attention to what he said. So the lifestyle of the gospel is a life that is built upon the teachings of the word of God. And that's all of them. You don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to say, well, I like this one, but I don't like this one. I like the, you know, be honest and, 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 you know, love your neighbor as yourself. But to be honest with you, I don't love my neighbor as myself. You can't pick and choose like that. You have to build your life on this foundation. Build your life on the Word of God. What does it look like, this culture, this lifestyle of the gospel? It's number two, a dependence on the Holy Spirit. A dependence on the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us in the book of Galatians, it talks about the Old Testament law, and it gives the reason why we have the Old Testament law. You know, all the thou shalt and thou shalt nots. Why do we have them? Well, the Bible tells us they are to be a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The purpose was to reveal to us how much we needed Jesus. Because when we hold our lives up to the law, we realize how broken and weak and human we truly are. Even if you just hold your life with, with, with some honesty up to the Ten Commandments and grade them on a 10% scale, you know, passing score is 100%. How do you do? Not well. I think if most of us were truly honest, we'd get a zero. Especially when we hold up to Jesus' teachings. He said, you've heard it said not to commit adultery, but I say unto you, whosoever looketh after a woman to lust after her in his heart has committed adultery already. You've heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but I say unto you, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause is in danger of the judgment. When we hold our lives up to that standard, then certain we fall short. That's why we needed salvation. When you came to Christ, you recognized, Lord, I cannot earn justification. I cannot earn heaven on my own. And so I need you to save me. That was the simplicity of the gospel. I'm not good enough. He is all good. And so I'm going to ask his forgiveness that he has offered freely to all men. But it doesn't stop there. Because when Jesus died and rose again and went to heaven, He gave to us who receive Him His Spirit. Jesus said to the disciples in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. How do we do that? He says, I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another comforter, that He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. For he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. These things have I spoken unto you, 
He says in uh, verses 25 through 27, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. If you've received Christ as your Savior, the Bible teaches us the Holy Spirit of God came at that moment to live with you. In fact, the gospel is a beautiful uh, fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy that God would pour out His Spirit upon all men. The moment you received Christ, the Holy Spirit came to live with you, abide with you. But he's not looking to be a deadbeat in the back of the room. He's not looking to be a freeloader having rent in your life, but not contributing in any way. No, the Holy Spirit, he wants to step in and help you every step. He wants to comfort you. He wants to teach you his word. He wants to empower you. He wants to give you courage. He wants to give you peace. See, the reality is you cannot follow Jesus. Not on your own. You never could. If you could, you wouldn't have needed him. But the Holy Spirit comes along, one who is more powerful than you are, one who is overcome this world, one who is strong and mighty, oh, you can follow Jesus then. Because he begins to do a work inside you. He begins to change you. Take your Bible. Go to Galatians if you would. There we're going from Matthew into the epistles there. Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians here. We're going to Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, we're going to find verse number 16. Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 16. Paul is writing to the churches in Galatia and he says this, This I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's kind of like a either or. You either walk in the Spirit or you fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit. It means as desires, it has wants that are contrary to what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. Did anybody notice when you got saved that there seemed to be this little battle inside of you? The old you would just run and done what the old you does. Perhaps you were saved uh, from, from uh, being a drunk, and you say, well, the old me would have just gone out to the bar and hung out with the buddies again. But there's this conflict in me. There's this thing that says I should not do that. I've got one part of me that says go. There's got another part of me that says stay, and I don't know what to do. There's this battle. Hollywood doesn't usually get very close when it comes to biblical things. But there is one illustration that Hollywood did okay with. Anybody remember the old Donald Duck cartoons? You've got what looks like a little Donald in red pajamas and a pitchfork. You've got a little Donald in a bathrobe with a halo. One's trying to convince him, yeah, you know, come down hard on your nephews. Uh, the other one's trying to convince him, no, you know, don't, don't, don't do that. Be kind. It's kind of like the Holy Spirit there. The Holy Spirit is trying to lead you and say, follow me. Listen to me. I'm going to instruct you in truth. I'm going to instruct you in the way of peace. I'm going to instruct you in the way of righteousness. I'm going to lead you in the right way. But you've got this old flesh that's pulling against it and saying, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do what I want to do. And so you've got this constant conflict. And the choice is you either walk in the Spirit you're depending upon the Holy Spirit, or you walk in the flesh. Here's a scary truth. Sometimes you can do spiritual things in the flesh. You can come to church and sing the songs in the flesh. Sunday school teachers and pastors, preachers, listen to me. You can stand behind the pulpit 
open God's Word and share it in the flesh. But God's Word warns us. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. That means there's no moral boundary. That's what that word means. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, that's that's fighting, Uh, uh, emulations, that's jealousy, wrath, strife, seditions, that's, that's divisions within the body, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The reality is, if you walk in the flesh, the flesh will lead you to do those things. And every one of us that have been saved, were saved from those things. And we know we don't want to go back to them. But what is the result of walking in the Spirit? Notice verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is. Now before we read that, let's pause and consider the wording here. God did not put any accidental words in the Bible. You starting to get that idea? God didn't put an oops word in the Bible. We have the works of the flesh. But then we have the fruit of the Spirit. Why do you think he didn't just say works of the Spirit? I mean, that'd be the comparison, the works of the flesh, the works of the Spirit. The reason God did not say the works of the Spirit are, or is, is because we don't do the work. It is a result of the Spirit. Notice here, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, that means patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is not a law. When we come to the fruit of the Spirit, sometimes we read it like a checklist, okay, of things I need to do. I need to be more loving. I need to be more peaceful. I need to have joy. I need to, do, to, to work hard and have these things. But that's not what the passage is teaching here. The passage is teaching here, if you walk in the Spirit, if you are dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God, then the Holy Spirit of God changes you, and the result of these things begins to develop in your life. In fact, the matter is, you cannot walk in the Spirit and not develop these things. It's a fruit. Jesus used the same illustration. He talked about false prophets. He says, you'll know them by their fruits. The idea there, you know, you plant a, a, an apple tree. What do you expect on that apple tree? The apple tree cannot help but produce apples. My apple trees at my house will never produce lemons. They'll never produce money, unfortunately. <laughs> They'll never put out anything else but apples. It is hardwired into the DNA, into the very roots, into the very core of that tree, that its job is to produce apples. And if we walk in the Spirit, if we as Christians learn to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit, we cannot help. It will be worked into our very DNA, the very core of our being, to be more loving to be more peaceful, to experience joy, to experience uh, being more gentle and, and, and patient and, and having some self-control. These are things the Holy Spirit of God develops in you just because you spend time with Him. That is the gospel. Jesus died to save you and calls you to live a new life, and He which has done a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. You Don't do it yourself. I know there's intentionality in the Christian life. You you do have to make decisions. But as you walk in the Spirit, He helps you with those decisions. He leads you. He guides you. You're not a robot, but he, he's, he is your friend. He is your comforter. He is the one who walks alongside you. So a culture, the lifestyle of the gospel is a lifestyle built upon the Word of God, independence on the Holy Spirit. How do we act out that dependence? Well, number three, it's a culture of prayer. Prayer. We Christians talk about prayer a lot. We don't do it. There's one thing that your pastor is a model to follow on, it is prayer. 
your pastor gets alone with God. He gets out. He spends time praying for you and praying for your church. We need prayer. Prayer is the action that that, that illustrates our dependence. And if ever we get to the point where we think we're okay without it, we must remind ourselves of this. Jesus prayed. Let that settle in for a moment. Throughout the Gospels, you'll find Jesus getting alone early in the morning and praying or, uh, or sending the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee and praying up in the mountain and spending time just Him and the Father. As we come to the end of his life, we find written down his prayer uh, in in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had a very vibrant prayer life. And if the very Son of God needed prayer, then you and I desperately need it. We don't pray. Sometimes it's because we don't feel comfortable. Sometimes it's because we don't know how to. These things should not be long-term excuses. Prayer is simply us talking to our Heavenly Father. And we teach children how to pray. I, I, each night, we, when either my wife or I settle down with Judson and, and we put him to sleep, we, 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 we'll, we have our uh, routine. We, you know, we, brush his, we put jammies on, brush his teeth, you know, read some stories, sing a song, and the last thing we do is pray with him. And that's very simple. It's usually something along the lines of, Dear Jesus, thank you for the wonderful day we had. Thank you for getting to spend time with, with uh, you know, this person. We pray that Judson will sleep well tonight. And I usually will say, oh, we'll pray for it and we'll name one person besides Judson. A simple prayer. It takes 30 seconds. I'm not trying to belittle prayer. It's a holy work. But it's not frightening. It's our, it's our, it's our line of communication with, with God. The Bible puts it this way. It's described as coming boldly into the throne of grace. It is our audience with the king. And we have the privilege to to burst into that throne room without fear or hesitation of being cast out because he is always ready to listen to his children. We must pray. How do we pray? In the the Lord's Prayer, we call it the, the Lord's Prayer. It's really the model prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In that prayer right there, there are five topics you can pray for. Number one, you start with praising God. Just praise Him. I've got so much to thank Him for so much. To praise Him for you see. He has been so good to me. Man, just praise Him. Just praise Him. Just tell Him how good He's been to you. He said, I don't have anything to be thankful for. You're breathing. You're enjoying His oxygen, walking on His earth, being held down by His gravity. (laughs) you got something to praise Him for. You live in a home, probably. How many of you have more than one car to drive? How many of you have more than one car, but there's a bunch that are broken down? <laughs> and when I'm in Silver Springs, like, like every hand goes up. It's the way it works. <laughs> Praise God. What else do we do? Uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Submit to him. Lord, help me to follow your will today. Holy Spirit, help guide me today. That's pretty simple. Make our request known to him. I guarantee you have some things to ask God for. A new job opportunity, wisdom, a financial need, a health need, a, a lost loved one, a, a child that you're trying to raise and you want to just strangle his little neck every now and then and you're like, Lord, help me to be patient with him. I mean, pray. think of things you asked God for. Uh, make a request to him. Ask for forgiveness and forgive us our debts. We certainly have things to ask forgiveness for. Ask for deliverance. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, protect me today. Or if there's, if there's a road I should not take because it will lead me uh, into a bad situation, let me know ahead of time. I wonder how many times God protected us from something that would have done us very serious harm we won't even know about till we get to heaven. The lifestyle of the gospel is one built upon the word of God. 
It's one is dependence on the Holy Spirit. It's one that is, you know, we realize how prayer is necessary. Number four, a lifestyle of the gospel is a lifestyle that is just similar to Jesus. Just be like Him. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. What are we transformed into? We're transformed to be like Jesus. We call ourselves Christians. But we didn't choose that name originally. Originally, the church called themselves disciples, the followers of Jesus. Christians was assigned by the world around them. It means little Christ. And so they were, it was kind of derogatory. It's like, you're, you're just like that Jesus you talk about. You're, you're little, little Christs. You're little Jesus freaks, okay? That's what you are. That was, that was an insult. That was the best insult it could be. Because it meant they were like him. It meant they were like Christ. And again, as you walk in the Spirit, as you read God's Word, as you pray, what you're doing, you're spending time with Jesus. And when you spend time with somebody, you just become like that person. My wife and I yesterday celebrated six years of marriage. For six years, she has put up with this. Amen. And I'd like to say I've had a good influence on her. But (laughs) I cannot do so. (laughs) And she now laughs at things that she would have never laughed at when we first started dating. (laughs) She has now inherited my strange, weird sense of humor. She's She's become like me. And I've become like her. We spend time with each other. My, my little boy, he becomes like me and my wife. And the hard thing about parenting is sometimes you see negative aspects of you in your children because they, they like you. Why? They spend time with you. You cannot spend time with somebody and not become like that person. They just It, it just rubs off on you. There's just certain things that are contagious about other people that rub off on you. you. You are, really, you are the sum total of the people you've hung around in your lifetime. Plus your own personality. The people who have influenced you, the teachers, the coaches, your parents, the people you've spent time with, that's who you are. And so if we spend time with Jesus, guess who we become like? We begin to think his thoughts. We begin to treat people like he treated people. Read the Gospels. What was Jesus like? Can you even describe him? Oh, this world, they all think they can define Jesus. You talk to, you talk to any person, you'll get, you know, talk to 10 people, you'll get nine different descriptions of what Jesus was like. But if you get into his word, you really get to see what he's like. You really get to, to, to see how he lived and, and how, how he paced himself and, and how he operated. We ought to be like him in every way, spiritually, morally, relationally. In every way, we ought to be like Jesus. He loved like no man loved. Greater, man love hath no, greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. That was the characteristic of Jesus' life. And Jesus said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, by the love that ye have one for another. You've got to be like him. The gospel lifestyle is a life like Jesus. Number five, I need to be done. What is the gospel lifestyle? It is built upon God's word. It is a lifestyle of dependence on the Holy Spirit. It is a lifestyle of prayer. It is a lifestyle of similarity to Jesus. And number five, this is where the rubber meets the road, is a lifestyle of commitment. Remember earlier I said the Holy Spirit does the work in you, and I do recognize that we have to make choices. This is one of those choices. When Jesus was doing ministry on earth, people would want to follow him. He was popular. He did miracles. I mean... He made bread and fish appear out of thin air and raise the dead. How many want to hang out with that guy? <laughs> I would. Especially if it meant I could be popular myself. Especially if there was some gain for it. And there were people like that. They wanted to follow Jesus. But then Jesus would test them. I think of the rich young ruler. 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? I've kept the commandments all the way. Sure you have. You know, there are certain passages of Scripture where you, you kind of make a note in the margin that says, you're kidding me, right? Like, like Moses and Aaron, Moses comes down from the mount, they're worshiping the golden calf. Moses said, what's going on? Aaron says, I don't know. I threw in the golden, out popped this calf. I don't know. I mean, you know, you're kidding me, right? This rich young ruler, I've kept the rule, I've kept the law, all the law since I was a youth. You're kidding me, right? Jesus said, all right, do this one thing. Go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. Now, this wasn't Jesus teaching that everybody at all times forever and ever needs to sell all they have and give to the poor and follow him. That's not, that's not what he was teaching. He was dealing with this one individual. Because this one individual had an, a problem with idolizing his wealth. He was very wealthy. He wanted to follow Jesus until Jesus asked for a commitment. I think of another man who said, Jesus, let me follow you, but let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, let the dead bury their dead but come and follow me. Another man said, I, sorry, I, I just married a wife. <laughs> I cannot follow you. Again, he challenges that. See, Jesus wants us to commit to him. The reality of the gospel-driven life, the gospel-centered life, the gospel lifestyle, is it cannot be a life with one foot in and one foot out. You're either following Jesus or you're not. There is no in-between. And I believe in the day and age in which we live, that is going to be more and more uh, relevant. You're going to see it. You're either going to follow Jesus or you're not. You're going to stand for truth and convictions of God's Word, or you're going to cave into this culture around us. There is no in-between. Not anymore. Fifty years ago, you could have been a just nominal Christian. You could have gone to church and blended in, and whether you actually loved Jesus or not, you could have fit in. That is not the case anymore. And it will not be the case until he comes again, I believe. There's commitment. There's commitment. Jesus told his disciples, You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Are you willing to be hated? I believe it may well come the time that we will have to suffer persecution. You have to make this commitment. I'll speak to the teenagers for a moment. Your generation, your generation is moving further and further away from God. And it's not, it's not anything against you. I'm, I'm a millennial speaking here, okay? The, the same thing they said, I'm saying about you, they said about me, all right? We made that shift. We were the ones that went out of church. We were the largest unchurched generation. Now this is Gen Z. We are called the gayest generation. 10% approximately millennials identify as LGBTQ. The latest poll, Gallup poll, identifies 21% of Gen Z as holding that, 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 that identification. And that's just one area. It's a loud area in our culture, but that's just one area. If you're going to live for Jesus, especially in your generation, young people, in your generation, if you're going to live for Jesus, it is going to take commitment. You're going to go to a public school, if you go to public school, and they're going to call you the Jesus freak. They're going to call you Bible nerd. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to try to tell jokes to make you blush, to see what they can to, 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 to get you off the rails. They're going to do everything they can to make you feel as if you are less than they are because you have a certain standard of holiness that you want to follow Jesus. Can I help you? It's worth it. Because he's worth it. You older generation, you're going to have to make a stand too. It's not just the youth that are leaving. It's older generation that's saying, I'm tired. I'm done. I fought my battle. I've, I've had enough. It's going to take commitment. 
You have to be willing. The very first passage we set, we read this morning, be not conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Verse number one told us that we are to present our bodies a living sacrifice. I'll close with this passage of Scripture. Jesus said, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I am not come to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foe shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He that taketh not his cross and falleth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loses his life for my sake shall find it. If you're going to bear the gospel in your lifestyle, you're going to live a life that is centered on the gospel, you are going to have to pick up a cross. And you're going to have to bear it. At work, at school, some of you in your own home. And I know that's, that's not comfortable to hear. That's not the fun thing. We want to come to church. We want to be uplifted. We want to hear, you know, you're doing great and, and, and I want to help you along. Hey, we are doing great because we have Jesus. And there's nothing in this world that we can, we're going to face that we cannot face without, with Jesus. I mean, with Jesus on our side, he has already won the victory. He's defeated death for crying out loud. I mean, he is victorious in all things. But there will be testing. Let's stand together. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. It's the invitation time. The invitation is a chance to make a decision. Preaching is always to bring us to a decision, to make a choice. The choice today is simple. Are you going to follow Jesus? If you accepted his gospel, you received his salvation, wonderful. He's calling you to follow him. He didn't call you just to get insurance and and call it a day. He called you to be his own. So will you follow him? As the piano begins to play,